Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Brother Lee. I'm same as Mark. I'm a little sentimental this morning, too. It's just, I mean, holidays. I always get, for me, any, anytime it's after a holiday, I always get a little bit of, like, post-holiday sadness. Just like, oh, but, like, after Thanksgiving, I'm usually pretty good because I'm like, Christmas is around the corner. I'm like, okay, everything's okay. Christmas is coming, and then all the beautiful snow is going to happen, hopefully, and all this jazz. But, like, after Thanksgiving, especially getting to come up here and teach after Thanksgiving is getting to see all these beautiful faces of people that I love. This is, this is city group people and so many other people, coffee people, people that I love. It's good. This is good for me. Okay, hopefully it's good for you once we get started. Good morning. Like Mark said, I'm Levi. I'm the student pastor here at Fellowship Nashville, and it's really good to see you guys here this morning. Like Mark said, we're finishing off our series that we've been calling Identity. And given all the changes that have been happening in the life of our church over the past couple years, and even the last couple months, we thought it was a good idea uh, to go back and look at our values for, because a lot of you guys may not have been here whenever we walked through them, when we were writing them and putting them together. We wanted to give you guys a better idea of who we are here at Fellowship Nashville and what we value as a church. So far, we've covered our priority of being gospel-centered, our place as a church in the city, and our posture of being a church for the city. And today we're looking at our purpose as a church of seeking a city above. As we pursue our purpose of seeking a city above, we have identified three subcategories, three values underneath the larger banner of seeking a city above that shows us the practical application of our purpose And those are eternity matters, prayer matters, and worship matters. Uh, We're going to have those up on the screen here in a second, but if y'all could read with me each of those things just so we can say it together as a church because it's very important. First is eternity matters. We live for what will last forever, giving people a clear picture of the holy city that is to come. Second is prayer matters. We dependently ask the Holy Spirit to empower us, praying earnestly for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then third is worship matters. We joyously love Jesus, and everything we do is ultimately about him. I like hearing y'all's voices. That's great. You'll see under each of these values, and y'all can see them online as well, that we give y'all scripture passages, Bible verses under each one to go along with each of those values. And there's two major reasons for that. Number one, we want to show you that what we believe is based in and completely dependent on scripture. We want you to know that what we believe is not based on human institution or traditionalism, but based on the perfect word of God. And two, we wanted you to give you guys a starting point to do your own exploring of God's word. Sunday is not the only time we want you guys opening up your Bibles. Our hope and our prayer is that you spend time exploring God's word as much as you can. We want you to keep us accountable as we keep you guys accountable. And dig into the scriptures to help yourselves understand what we are called to do as image bearers of God. To help springboard us into our conversation this morning, I've got a question for you guys, kind of a triple threat question of literally what we just talked about. Why does eternity matter? Why does prayer matter? And why does worship matter? It's 
fair to ask why. Like, why, why do we do it? Why is it important? For a lot of you, it may be because it's what you've always done and what you've always known. You grew up worshiping God on Sundays, so you keep doing it. You pray before every meal. You pray when you're in a tough spot. Eternity is this big word that means something about God or something about heaven. And it's hard to understand, but I know it's important. For many of us, we may say we believe it just because we've always been taught to believe it, and that's it. And don't, and don't, I, I don't want... I don't want to confuse anybody. A lot of what we've always learned is super important. I've used this example before, but for many of us, we grew up singing the song, Jesus Loves Me. And now for a lot of you guys, you sing it or teach it to your kids. Is Jesus Loves Me a true and important thing from scripture that we are supposed to teach? A hundred percent. That's absolutely true. And I guarantee you guys, you can, you can find it in scripture for sure, but I bet I'm sure a lot of you have scripture memorized that affirms that phrase, Jesus loves me. It's super important. But not everything that we do as the larger kind of American Christian church is based in scripture. Like I said, I feel like I re- repeat stories a lot, so if I've told this story before, I apologize, but it's, it, it's relevant to the application. In middle school and high school, I had uh, this phrase that I would kind of keep in the back of my mind, keep in my back pocket for whenever I was going through a difficult time or I needed help getting through something. And it was, God will never give you more than you can handle. If you've been around fellowship for any period of time, you've heard me or Mark or someone up here say, that's not in scripture, it's not true. We get way more than we can handle on a daily basis. That's one of the many reasons we need Jesus. But while I was a freshman in college, I said this statement. I can't remember the context, but I was in class, and we were in the back of the class, and I like said it to a classmate. I was like, hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. And they responded by saying, hey, that's, I really like that a lot. Can you tell me where in Scripture that is so that I can have it for later? Like, what, what, what's the Bible verse? And I always, um, in high school and college, I always carried... Uh, this pocket Bible around with me. This is actually the first Bible. I had bought, you know, you, you grow up in the church, people just give you Bibles. But this was the first Bible that I actually bought myself, and it was really cool because it's got like a crown of thorns on it. I'm like, oh, that's super awesome. And it was, I was like in eighth grade when I bought it. And it's, I mean, it's barely holding together. It's been thrown in at least three pools. Uh, I would say two of the times it was in my pocket and I was thrown into the pool. But it's, yeah, it's barely holding on. But I always had this with me just to like have God's word on me. And I was like, oh yeah, I can find it. Sifting through, couldn't find it. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go back to my dorm after class. I'll open up my study Bible. I'll see if I can find it. Looked in my study Bible, couldn't find it. Looked in Google. So I just typed it in. It's just like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Nothing. Like there's, there's nothing, plenty of articles, nothing from God's word. Because it's not there. This classmate, by asking the question, just asking the question of where is it, or you know, why are you saying, whatever the question was, not only exposed me and my poor use of scripture and theology, but it also helped refine my understanding of scripture and allowed me to throw that phrase in the garbage. I, I didn't use it ever again. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember texting my dad, and I was like, is this in the Bible? And he was like, no. I was like, what did you think? I was like, I don't know why I thought that. Traditionalism, a.k.a. 
we do something just because we've always done it is not okay. If you ever talk to somebody, a pastor or, or a church leader or something, and you say, I'm not talking like, hey, why do you write with this color pen? It's like, oh, well, I've always just done it. That's fine. But if, if like, hey, why is our theology on baptism this, this, and this? And if their response is, well, it's just what we've always done, that is a bad answer. That is a really bad answer. When we ask the question why, we refuse to be okay with habit for the sake of habit or tradition for the sake of tradition. And we call out false teaching and poor biblical application. And guys, it's everywhere. It's good to ask the question why. Our main text this morning is actually just two verses. It's just Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We're going to be jumping all over Scripture, but our main base is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And with those two verses, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, he also teaches us that when we pray, we are called to worship the Lord with an eternal perspective. As we walk through this text, my hope is that we help answer the question, why? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? Why do we seek and look towards eternity? And why is that important? As we get ready to enter God's word, would you guys pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for another day, for oxygen in our lungs, for the sunshine. Thank you for your word and for the time that we get to spend in it, Lord. Help us to fully realize what this word is saying, Lord. Give us open minds and open hearts to experience it and to mull it over, Lord. We trust you and we love you because you loved us first. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Two verses. Super quick. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time, every time I read that, I learned, I'm sure a lot of you have it memorized. I learned it like, in the, I learned it in the King James Version. So every bone in my body wants to say, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Every bone in my body wants to. I'm trying to keep, uh, all, it's, all the texts are ESV, so I was like, oh, I'm going to put it down. But I, I almost, even as I was, I have to like look at it and read it or I will for sure say, say it the other way, which is totally fine. I bet most of you in this room, regardless of your go to church or are religious in any respect or not, have in, at some point in your lives prayed, or at least know what prayer is. Prayer, in, in my personal opinion, is one of the most underappreciated and misunderstood aspects of the Christian life. And, and here's why. Prayer is the personal communication with the creator of the universe. Prayer, prayer is the personal communication with the creator of the universe. If, you, if as I said that, there was a voice in your brain 
So I know for a fact someone in this room felt this in their brain. Because as I was studying it, I was like, yeah, I know that. And I was like, ooh, not good. If there was a voice in your brain that said, yeah, 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 I already know that, push that away. Push that away. If you truly, in your heart, realize the gravity of that statement, that it is personal communication with the creator of the universe, we would be, our hearts would be leaping at that reminder. The truth of what prayer actually is. Like, again, I love visual examples. If I pulled my phone out right now, and I looked up a number and put it on speakerphone, and Paul McCartney answered his phone, and was like, I really thought about doing a Paul McCartney impression, and I'm not going to do it. But if he answers his phone, he's like, oh, hey, Levo, what's going on? Oh, you come over, we're going to write songs together, it's going to be awesome. 40% of you would be losing your minds. 30% of you would at least be somewhat impressed by it. 20% of you would probably pass out. And 10% of you would not think it was that big of a deal, either because you don't know who Paul McCartney is or you have terrible taste in music. One of the two. I thank you for laughing at that. I thought I was like Taylor Swift. I was like, I don't like Taylor Swift's great, but like if I had that, like Paul McCartney, he's my absolute favorite. Regardless of your opinion on Paul McCartney, 100% of you in this room would at least recognize that a direct line to one of the greatest songwriters ever is, is kind of a big deal. If you can just call him up whenever you want. As image bearers of God, we can speak, we can come before the Lord of creation whenever we want. Ox, the guy who allows oxygen to come into our lungs, the creator of the universe, the one who said, you know what, today you get to wake up. We can come before him whenever we want. The one who spoke everything into being. Did you know, did you know that the majority of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are laments? Not praises, not thanksgivings, but laments. And I know prayer for, for some people is kind of strange, as you're like, you know, talking to God, or if you're raised in more kind of conservative areas like prayer is like hyper conservative it's like prayer you don't you don't call out to god it's like it's very it's very formal over 30% of the book of psalms is david or one of the psalmists crying out to god in anger or fear or sadness prayer is the way we as children of god can come before our king with our joy and our pain and our sorrow while we submit to his will. As Christians, prayer allows us to come before the Lord to not only make our requests known to God, but also to align ourselves with his plan. It is very important that we appreciate prayer for what it is. It is a huge, huge privilege that we have whenever we want. Okay, Let's dive a little deep, bit deeper into verse 9 again. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Heavenly Father, your name is holy and above all. I don't know about you, but for me, that sounds a lot like what we just got doing up here with Brett. That sounds like worship to me. Lord, you are Lord of all. Your name is holy. That's like 50% of the songs we sing up here. When we pray, worship plays a role. Worship plays a role in the way that we pray. Now, when I say worship, I, I guarantee most, most people, I'll just say a lot of people, I can't guarantee that, think about what, what we do up here, what Brett does week in and week out phenomenally up here. Is this worship? Is this worship? Yes, yes it's absolutely worship. 100% it's worship. But just because we sing on Sundays doesn't mean we truly worship. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. If your heart is not in the right place, Scripture calls your worship vain. The kind of worship where your heart is not in the right place, longing and, 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 and leaning towards God, Scripture refers to that as worthless worship. True worship is having a heart for God. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When Scripture says worship... It includes the way we live, which includes the way we pray. And John 4, chapter, or excuse me, John 4, verses 23 through 24 says, But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when, tr- when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We must worship God in spirit and And in truth, true worship, real worship, genuine worship requires a mental comprehension of who God truly is and what he has done. That's the truth portion. A mental comprehension and understanding. This is who God is. I've read his word. I like, oh my gosh, this is who God is. I, I have that in my brain. And for that realization to change our hearts to long for God even more. That's the spirit portion. We read God's word. Oh my gosh, this is who God is? Oh my gosh, I want to know him more. Worship is when we hold God above all other things. When we find our satisfaction in God, that is the purpose and the design of worship. That's why we call it worship. It is worth-ship. Worth-ship, it is the recognizing of one's worth and responding appropriately. Just because you sing does not mean you worship. Just because you attend church does not mean you worship. True, genuine, authentic valuing and satisfaction in God is how the psalmist sings it in Psalm 100. A lot of you guys might know Psalm 100, but I'm going to read it for you guys. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Here's like a modern Levi translation. I'm going to word it kind of... I'm going I'm 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 to say it again, but kind of in my own words here. We serve a good and gracious God. I can't help but sing praises to him. Not only did he create me and allow breath in my lungs, but despite my sinfulness, he claims me as his own, a sheep that gets to be shepherded by him, cared for by him, protected by him. Our God is good and faithful and steadfast, and his love will never stop for his sheep. True worship is authentic valuing and satisfaction in God. So when Jesus calls us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, this is not passive recognition. This is not an awareness of, I know God is holy, I know he created the universe, I've learned it since I was a kid, I, I know how this works. This is an active and genuine understanding of who God is and how holy his name truly is. It's not passive. It's very much active. Okay, let's jump into verse 10. Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray... Jesus calls us to have an eternal perspective on life. As we pray, we are asking God's will to be done and for heaven to come to earth. This prayer is, incorporates eternity language, a prayer asking heaven to come down to earth. Now, for, for, for most of us, because of the way TV and movies have kind of shaped our perception, when we think about heaven, we might think about like long white robes and little babies with wings flying around and everyone's got their own like monogrammed harp that we're playing all the time and everybody's super happy and it's just like, man, I love playing this harp so much and we're all singing and skipping around and it's fluffy like cotton balls everywhere. We're about to jump into the book of Revelation real quick. Yeah. Very important. And what we're going to see is how Scripture actually describes eternity. Movies and TV are super fun, but in Revelation chapter 21, this is how Scripture shows eternity. I'll have it on the screen behind me, but it's Revelation 21. Y'all can turn there if you'd like. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to do 22 through 27 after that. I'll read for us. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. That is a good verse. Oh, my goodness. 
That is such a good verse. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but also those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we read about heaven in Scripture, there's usually two ways that Scripture talks about it. The first is when it refers to the sky and the stars and the moon and the sun, the up, up there that we can see. Those are the heavens, like in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for some people, they think that means heaven, like he created heaven, like the, the place where God lives, and then earth, the place where humans live. And, so, and that's one way to go about it. Funny enough... Genesis is a creation account, and contextually, those words, if we said it in our vernacular, would be something more like, in the beginning, God created the sky and the land. Moses, as he gives the creation account in Genesis, is referring to the upward space and the downward space, the sky and the earth. The second way the Bible talks about heaven is in reference to, and this is where a lot of our brains go, is the place where we as believers go to die, or after we die. When we die, we go to this place to await the culmination of all things. The place that's usually the place we think about. The same place that Jesus said to the thief on the cross where he would go in Luke 23. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This paradise is the heaven. We're very aware of this the place we get excited about getting to because it's God's space. It's where God is. We get to fully realize and experience God. The place where God dwells, where we get to experience him fully. You know what's super fascinating about all of that? When the Hebrew writers were thinking about God and talking about God, their language is more often than not talking about God coming down and bringing justice and righteousness to the earth rather than us escaping this sinful place to go to a, to a better one. All that to say, is heaven, where we get to be in God's presence, is it better than this sinful earth? Absolutely, without doubt. We get to be in God's presence. We get to look God in the eye. We get to, sin is, is not a part of our lives anymore. Of course it's better than this sinful earth. Is that what we're supposed to be looking forward to? Actually, no. That's not where it stops. We don't go someplace and then it's like, we're done. Like, there's more. There's more to the story. Our future hope is in Jesus. When he returns to make all things right here on earth as it is in heaven. To make all things new in the human space as it is in God's space. 
to make all things, we're going to talk about this here in a second, like the Garden of Eden again. We see in Genesis this place called the Garden of Eden. What's amazing about Eden is it's not, it's not, a, it's not just God's space or it's not just human space, but it, th- there's no difference. There's no differentiation. It's not like, well, this is where God... It's, it's perfect overlapping humanity and God together. It's just the one space together. God and humanity in perfect relationship. God walking in the cool of the day and us walking along with him. That's what Eden was. God makes the world on, in six days. And on the seventh day, it says that God rests. And I feel like we've talked about this before, but when we say rests, we don't want to think about naps. Like God isn't like tired and then passes out. Like the language in that moment, when we read when he talks about God resting, we're supposed to think about a king, and we don't have enough time to go into the logistics of the language, but the language is a king sitting on his throne. On the seventh day, after God has finished creation, he sits upon his throne and he rules his creation. He rests on his throne. It's very similar language when we talk about God's presence in the temple in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, when it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? After the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, the overlap, the perfect unity of God and humanity is broken. And humanity is left to cultivate a fallen world. But God does not abandon his people. Through the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple, God gives humanity an opportunity to be in covenant relationship with him. The temple becomes the resting place. The temple becomes the resting place and the ruling place of God in which we see a small picture of what Eden is. This perfect overlap of God's space and human space. The temple is this small space where God and his people, Moses gets to do it, the, the priests get to do it. We see it on Mount Sinai as well. There's a, whole, there's a whole study we can do on that. But God's presence, his glory filling a space and representatives of his people getting to be in that fully realized glory-filled God space of the temple and the tabernacle. Even in a fallen world, we still see, we, we are still image bearers of God. But instead of humanity submitting fully to the will of our creator, we are enslaved by our sinfulness. And Jesus will return and restore this world to what it was supposed to be a fully realized new heavens and new earth, a fully realized Eden. In Romans chapter 21, we get a picture of that fully realized Eden, the new heavens and the new earth. Now this phrase, when I talk about new heavens and new earth, in verse one, it's, it's not talking about a new waiting place, like God's gonna give heaven a makeover and then he's gonna give earth a makeover. Like that's not, we're not talking about that we're talking about new sky and new earth like Genesis 1 this it's a restored eden it's cre- it's 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 restoration language 
a holy city in verse two, a place where God will dwell with us in verse three, where there won't be a temple because God's space and human space is in perfect unison again, perfect covenant relationship. And so we don't need a temple to go to because God is just, we get to experience him fully. Where the light of God is so bright that we don't need a sun or moon and night will no longer exist in verse 23 and 24. Where all God's people, whom he chose, will be living together for all eternity. In verse 27, a fully realized overlap of God and his people. Now, this is, this is a total aside, but I wanted to make a comment because I know, at least for me, if I was listening to this, I wanted to make a comment on verse 2 and verse 23 um, of what we just talked about. When it says, the sea will be no more, and then the city has no need for a sun and moon to shine on it. Does that mean that there will be no ocean and no more sun and no more moon, that's definitely possible. There's, if, if, if you, when we read our English translation, it, seems, it definitely seems that way. So if you leave here and you're like convinced, no sun, no moon, no ocean, and new heavens and a new earth, I'm not gonna fight you on it. I, I, I really won't. However, I did wanna remind you guys, this passage, again, is creation language, like in Genesis chapter one. During creation, when God creates first, he cre- does he create, uh, I'll form it in a question just because I'm curious. When God does creation, does he create light first or does he create the sun first? He creates light first. The sun, it's not like, man, we need the sun so that we can have light. Light happens first and then the sun. We, he doesn't need the sun or the moon for light in the perfect Eden, but the sun and the moon are still there. Additionally, in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, and again, super big study we could do on this, um, with anything that I talk about, if you guys are like, I want to know more, just ask me. I can send you all a bunch of resources. But when we talk about deep waters or the sea, it means something very different to us now than it did symbolically in the ancient Near East. Water symbolizes death and chaos. In Genesis 1, 1, when it says in verse, or excuse me, in Genesis 1, when it says in verse 2, the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. As a kid, I remember reading that and being like, that makes no sense to me. I thought God created everything, but before creation, there's water. And so does that mean that water is eternal, like God is? Or does that mean that he like, we just don't have a recorder where he said, let there be water. Okay, now we're going to start creation. And then it was like he was hovering. Like, what does that mean? Water in creation narratives in the ancient Near East refers to chaos. So in Genesis 1 verse 2, the idea of water. So the, again, Moses is writing this to the, to the Israelites. It's like, here's how God created the world. You're hearing all these creation stuff from the Canaanites and all these other people. We just got out of Egypt. They're telling you how the world was created. Here's how the world was created. I will tell you. It was God, but it started off, it wasn't God started off with like clay or God started off with this. It started with nothing and he was hovering over, the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the chaotic nothingness, which means everything came from God. That's kind of what we're supposed to have. Personally, I think there will be sun, moon, and ocean present in the new heavens and the new earth. If we take this chapter of Revelation for what it is, God coming down and restoring 
this sinful world into what it was supposed to be, a fully realized new heavens and new earth, a fully realized Eden, then I believe the sun, moon, and ocean are still going to be there, even though God doesn't need the sun and moon for light. But if you think the opposite, it's not a huge, huge issue. John 3.16 says, and you guys know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Some of you guys have everlasting life. Same thing, eternal life. Eternal life with God is the plan. That's the plan. Eternal life in a garden with God, walking and talking, living in perfect relationship. It got all messed up when sin entered the world. Death wasn't an option for us until we sinned. But with Jesus, we won't perish, but go back to living eternally with God. What lasts forever is not the events of this world or the pain of this life, but the God who conquered death for us. When Jesus returns to make all things right, he will fully enter, we, are, we will fully enter the presence of God in the restored heavens and new earth. I'm going to welcome the band back up here. Um, and I, I'm going I'm to piece these pieces together. Um, the, top of, the topic of eternity is a big conversation. It really is. And I get that. Like we, If we really, really spent an adequate amount of time on eternity and prayer and worship, we would be here for days. And even then, we would leave and be like, there's still so more to learn. There's still so much more to discover. Our purpose as a church is to seek a city above, to live a life that looks to the fully realized Eden and to live a life that reminds the world that the reason for that reality is because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We remember that the new heavens and new earth is the place we will dwell for eternity in God's presence. No temple, no night, but an eternity of basking in the glory of our creator. But until that day comes, we lean on our creator every second of every single day. We come before him in prayer as we realize how desperately we need him and how much he has done for us to help keep our focus on eternity and to align our hearts and minds with the will of our king. And when we realize the significance of what is to come and what Christ did to get us there, We can't help but come before the Lord and worship him. That's why we worship. It's the, you, like, I'm, again, I think the, the, one of the worst things that we can do as followers of Christ is be cavalier about this. Oh yeah, Jesus died for me. He died for us. Not like, we can't be cavalier about this. We can't. Everything hangs in the balance. We worship him and his goodness. We worship him for his compassionate presence in our lives. 
We worship him in utter awe of what he has done and what he will do for us until the end of time and into eternity. We're about to sing one more worship song. And when people worship different ways, I was talking to our kids director, Tay, about this the other day, about like how different people worship and things like that. People worship different ways. There's not one way. You don't have to jump around and dance, you, you know, whatever, like whatever your worship is. But I want you guys during this time to really just incline your hearts towards God. I want you guys to, to, to recognize the truth of who God is and what he did for you, how he ripped you out of the sin that you were in and said, you're not of this world anymore. You're mine. I'm claiming you. You belong to me. You're my child. He, he did that. You guys know scripture. You know what Christ did for you. I want you guys to focus that in your brain. And as we worship, I don't, it doesn't need to be flashy. If you got, like, again, we're worshiping before the Lord. David danced before the Lord till his clothes fell off. Like, we're, we are worshiping the king of the universe. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what he thinks. We're not worshiping for each other. We're worshiping for God. And if that means hands in pockets, that's fine. If it means hands in the air, that's fine. If I don't, I don't know how you worship as long as you realize the Lord is king and he died for you. And he is, not only should we desire to worship him, but he deserves to be worshiped because he gave everything for us. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Lord, we're not perfect. And so we need you. We need you in our lives. Because without you, we're incapable of understanding. We're incapable. You, you, ha you, you have to meet us where we are. And that's exactly what you did. You came down and you humbled yourself, becoming flesh. And you died for us. Thank you for your word. And thank you for giving us the ability to praise you and to worship you. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for this season of Thanksgiving, Lord. I pray that that season of Thanksgiving continues on throughout the rest of the year and into the next one, Lord. We are so thankful for you and for what you've done. And I pray that our worship is a true and authentic valuing of who you are as we look towards and get excited about eternity with you. We love you so much, God. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.